live online and on the radio from the heart of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio Studio in Huntsville, Alabama. Today, Washington Post journalist Lauren Gurley joins to explain who the target is of our child labor laws, and you're not going to be surprised to know that it's often not the bosses. We take a look at the Democrats' legislative agenda in Alabama, not that it matters much. Tommy Tuberville refused to respond to requests for comment from us. All that and more on today's program. If you want to be part of the show, if you want to be part of the show, we've got a phone number and the line is open. You can call or text 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. You can also leave a voicemail or send us a text message throughout the week at the same number, folks. At the same number. You've only got only to save one to get in contact with us. If you haven't gotten enough of us by the time that we wrap here on the radio, or if you just want to see what we're up to throughout the week, then you can find us anywhere you find anything online, particularly at our website, tvlr.fm. You definitely want to bookmark that, tvlr.fm, and um, become a subscriber to our daily newsletter. Become a subscriber to our daily newsletter at tvlr.fm slash contact. You can make a note of that. We are coming out every day with new content on our website. New reports, new articles, new reporting. Like actual real, um, we're doing some some uh, some journalisming a little bit. Uh, having a lot of fun. Uh, just yesterday we released an article about XFL players unionizing with the steelworkers. We'll be talking some more about that probably in overtime. But yeah, so uh, find us online, tvlr.fm. Sign up for our newsletter, tvlr.fm slash contact. Follow us on Twitter at The Valley Labor Report, YouTube, Twitch, TikTok, wherever you get your podcasts, you can find us. If you want to become a sustaining member of the program, make a one-time donation or buy our hat or pre-order our shirts. Pre-orders close tomorrow. We kept the pre-orders open for one week. We're closing them tomorrow and placing the order. So make sure you do that at tvlr.fm slash store. Our shirts are going to be really cool. They've got a really great design uh, by a artist. We commissioned the art and we are uh, we're using a... Uh, obviously, union 
uh, shirt manufacturer, but the shirts are particularly good. They're not just, you know, your normal organization t-shirts. They're softer. Uh, they're more sturdy. They're really, they're really nice. They're just nice to wear. So, um, so do that at tvlr.fm slash store. You can become a member of the program at tvlr.fm slash donate. Uh, you can donate to our expansion fundraiser, which we're not promoting as much, but we are about, we raised about $3,100, and that's about $900 short of where we want it to be. So uh, if you could help us get there, that'd be great. You can do that at tvlr.fm slash expand. You can also become a patron at p- uh, patreon.com slash the Valley Labor Report. And if you're a member of a union, definitely, definitely uh, try to get your local or your international to sponsor the show. Get your internationals packed to buy some ads, right? I Ooh. mean, that's that's a good one. I mean, how just just think about this for a little bit. Dollar for dollar, I you know, obviously I'm biased because I'm, you know, I this is this is my pet project, right? This is this project is kind of my baby, but I uh have a hard time believing that dollar for dollar investing in independent labor focused media is not better for you politically as the working class. I have a hard time uh, believing that it would not be better for you to invest in this project than to write a check to a politician. Um, at least split some of the money. That would be that. That's kind of that's kind of my pitch on that. I mean, how how much return for your dollar do you get when your pack writes a five thousand dollar check to one of these politicians? Right, probably not much. So consider that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great idea. And I uh, also want to add a disclaimer that any viewpoints or opinions expressed today in this program belong solely to their author and do not necessarily represent any organization or sponsor. And however you're listening, whether that's YouTube, Facebook, WVNN, WZZA, WHIV, or through your favorite podcast app, welcome. We appreciate your time. We appreciate you listening. And finally, we are proud to be part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, and we encourage our listeners to check it out. Absolutely. That is a, that's a great place to go if you want some more labor-focused content. So uh, definitely check them out. Um, so, Adam, you know, we wanted to, you, we wanted to start the, the program off today with, with just, you know, because it, it's, well, uh, you know, some of it may seem outside of our wheelhouse, and, and certainly it's not, I wouldn't say, like our area of expertise, but, you know, these... Uh, we just released, even though the conversation's been a while ago, we just released as a clip our conversation with Dr. Lois Weiner, and um, she makes a very good point about culture about culture war versus economic class war type stuff, and how ought unions and the working class respond to, you know, these culture war attacks by demagogues and theocrats and and things like this and attempts to divide us. And, and, um, you know, we, we, uh, so you had, you had something that you wanted to say about that. Yeah, absolutely. I just thought it was appropriate to start off this way, uh, to talk about the need for solidarity instead of bigotry, uh, seemed appropriate given the news cycle 
because in state capitals across the South and around the country, reactionary legislators are targeting LGBT folks. They're targeting women's rights. They're targeting intellectual freedom and cranking out a whole slew of other backwards proposals that frankly seem intent on making life harder for already vulnerable groups of people while increasing the division within our society. As working class people, we can't fall for these tricks. We can't let our class be divided. Regardless of gender, religion, ethnicity, immigration status, education background, zip code, at the end of the day, the vast majority of people in Alabama, Tennessee, and every, everywhere else is working class. We have nothing to sell but our labor. We are a majority, and it's up to us and our unions to make sure we unite as a majority. It's our labor that spins the wheels of our economy and our society. As working people, we have more in common with each other, despite our differences, than we do with the bosses and their politicians. As working class activists, we have to make sure we oppose any attempts to divide us or target groups of us. We have to ensure our unions are fighting hard against these reactionary bills. And we have to extend our support and our solidarity to all of our fellow workers, even if they don't look like us or think like us or talk like us. The answer to bigotry is solidarity. We have to fight bigotry with solidarity. That means being willing to fight for folks that you might not even know. It means being willing to fight battles that, at least on the surface, may not even seem like your battle. But we know, in the labor movement, that an injury to one is an injury to all. When these far-right politicians and the special interest groups behind them target trans folks and queer folks and other minorities, it's an attack on all of us. We know that one of the best weapons available to working people to fight discrimination in the workplace and in the economy is the collective power of our unions. To withstand these bigoted attacks and the more that are sure to come, we have to organize the working class along our common interests, building strong and diverse unions capable of opposing exploitation and oppression. As believers in this labor movement, we believe that y'all means all and that human rights are not negotiable. So to our trans comrades and all others being targeted by our governments, know that we stand with you in solidarity in the fight for democracy, dignity, and justice. And we encourage all of our listeners to do the same. Absolutely. Thanks for that, Adam. Um, so the Alabama Democrats in the... Uh, state house of representatives here in alabama um they released they they had a big they had a big to do last week about unveiling their legislative agenda um and you know that seems like i don't know just on the face of it as a super minority you would think if you're gonna have this big to do i mean this the the senate dems didn't have one of these right it was just the house dems that's right. That's right. And so you would think if there's some big to do that that as a super minority 
that this is mostly going to be, I mean, I, I don't know the, the way that I, I think is that if I have no actual power to pass things, I'm going to be going, I'm, I'm, it's going to be all message bills. It's going to be big, bold, transformational party, um, defining and separating from the the opposition party which in this case would be the republicans we want to show how we are because obviously right look if they want if if alabama voters want conservative policies they're just going to keep voting republicans for the republicans right they're not going to vote for a democrat if they want conservative policies it would seem to me it would, that's it would seem to me that to vote democrat you want something different you want something different and so you want to define this difference in a real big and bold way it just that's how that would be i don't know that would be the way that i would go is that is that kind of what they did <laughs> well not quite uh i i would not say that and you know i i went into it with a similar mindset as you uh you know, my position would be if you are in the mi- super minority, meaning literally you do not have to show up. Right. <laughs> they don't have to show up. The Republicans have enough votes to do whatever they want uh, within their own caucus. So, yeah, I, I would have the same approach as you, but that is not the approach that was taken. If you read the recent op-ed from the House Democrats minority leader, Anthony Daniels, or you listened to our discussion of it a couple weeks ago, then you have a pretty good idea of how this agenda was framed. And we do have a couple clips we'll play for you to, to spell that out. But the House Democrats caucus is calling their legislative agenda the plan for prosperity. And if they said it once, they said it 100 times that this is a pro-growth agenda. As with the Daniels op-ed calling for a cut to the overtime tax, everything is couched in business-friendly language, and there's likely nothing that was said during the 50-minute press conference that would offend the Chamber of Commerce or the Business Council of Alabama. Now, that's not what I would personally call a, quote, bold agenda, as Daniels called it and others have labeled it. In fact, at one point, Daniels said he didn't see anything that should be problematic for his colleagues across the aisle within their agenda, which tells you that they confined their imaginations to what they thought was possible under a GOP supermajority. And, you know, I get that strategy. No one runs for office and and hopes to spend four years accomplishing nothing. So I do understand that, but you know, to Jacob's point, my thinking is that when you are a super minority and the other side has the votes to do whatever they want, that's the time to be truly bold and to draw contrast because you have nothing to lose. But, you know, that's just us. A couple quick hits before I get into the meat of it. Uh, I did want to highlight that Representative Laura Hall, a former career educator right here from Huntsville, she spoke on public education for a few minutes and handled the education side of their agenda. I thought everything she said was was very solid, uh, though nothing particularly new necessarily, uh, but all you know, all good stuff. Uh, one thing she mentioned was establishing childcare for teachers. I think that's a great idea. They should really lean into. 
Um, and it would be a great use of all this so-called excess revenue that's in the education budget. You know, if there's all this extra money, I could see, uh, you know, especially establishing a pilot program, perhaps in certain areas. Uh, but why, why, why not? Why not establish child care centers within our school districts to serve the employees? Um, seems like a win-win scenario. So some good stuff on education, nothing groundbreaking, but, you know, solid. Then we had Representative Hassel out of Montgomery who spoke on voting rights. Uh, let me see if I got that clip here to play for you, because I did want to highlight, you know, obviously we're a little bit negative right out of the gate here, and I, I wanted to highlight uh, that there were some things that I thought were pretty good. So let's take a listen here. Our young people understand the importance of good citizenship, community service, and civic engagement. Yeah, like many of you, I couldn't help but notice that during our last election cycle, voter turnout was, was at a 30-year low. This is why it's so important that we make voting easier and more accessible. Rather than making the process more difficult under the false pretense of preserving election integrity or preventing non-existent voter fraud, as our Secretary of State has proudly asserted publicly, we know that our election process in Alabama is safe, secure, and accurate. Now it's time to ensure that the, voter, the voices of all eligible voters are heard. Alabama House Democrats understand that our constitutional right to vote is free, fair, and honest election in the, in the cornerstone of our democracy. This is essential to our common prosperity. We must enact legislation to allow for automatic voter registration at the age of 18, curbside voting, early voting, and guaranteed absentee voting. Furthermore, we must restore voting rights to those who have paid their debt to society. This means this mean removing redundant and burdensome court fees or fines as a condition to regaining the freedom to vote. We, can, we could and should make voting easier increase voter participation of all eligible voters as we can do more while ensuring and safeguarding integrity within our election process. The people of Alabama deserve to have their voices heard and votes counted which means supporting voter education efforts and ensuring that the elderly. So, yeah, I wanted to uh, highlight that from Representative Hassel because he did at least acknowledge the low voter turnout, which I appreciated. Um, I believe that low voter turnout in Alabama goes well beyond our restrictive laws. Uh, but I think he spoke uh, effectively to the need to make voting easier in the state rather than trying to make it harder while fighting imaginary fraud. So uh, I was glad to hear that brought up. At one point later in the press conference, Representative Moore from Birmingham mentioned how her bills often never even get a committee hearing. And that's a testament to some of the poor governance by the Alabama Republican supermajority. You know, we'll see if things change now. There are, you know, several dozen new legislators down there in Montgomery. So, you know, we'll see if they take a different approach. But, uh, you know, I don't see any harm in allowing bills to be heard in committee. Mm. That's That seems pretty shameful. Representative Insler, who is a new Democratic legislator, uh, spoke on the need for criminal justice reform. He advocated for several bills being pushed by Representative Chris England, uh, who has really you know, been on top of that issue as, as a priority for him. And he called out the inhumane conditions in Alabama's prisons. Uh, and I was glad to see that get mentioned. Uh, there were actually families of prisoners who 
were outside the state house during Governor Ivey's State of the State address. These were families who've lost loved ones to the violence inside of our prisons. So, uh, you know, I appreciate that that was at least mentioned. But I should also say that throughout his segment, he was very careful to align with law enforcement multiple times. Uh, you know, most of what he discussed, particularly regarding guns, uh, he was very much framing them as on the side of law enforcement. Uh, so, you know, that's that's the approach they're taking in that in that arena. Hmm. And then we get to really the meat of it, which was really towards the front. Uh, they started with economics. And so I want to play this clip for you guys just to see sort of how things were framed rhetorically, if nothing else. So important that we prioritize investments in infrastructure and that we expend federal ARPA dollars with a focus on long-term growth and prudent revitalization. Alabama House Democrats strongly believe in ensuring that businesses, large and small, have the necessary capital, qualified personnel, and meaningful resources they need to prosper and thrive. Our pro-growth economic plan of bold strategic investments includes reducing the tax burden on family-owned businesses, ensuring greater access to affordable housing, and incentivizing childcare for parents returning to the workforce. We must continue our efforts to close the income gap and bolster training opportunities to meet the specialized and evolving demands of innovative high-tech employers. Further, so you see, there was an explicit mention of ensuring that, you know, family businesses have needed capital. But I can tell you in the 50 minutes of the press conference, there was no use of the word labor or union or working class. Um, at one point later in the press conference, uh, with some back and forth between journalists, there was a discussion of Medicaid expansion. And I will give Representative Daniels credit. He did say the words working poor uh, mm. in reference to Medicaid expansion, since that is primarily who would benefit. Uh, but yeah, it was, uh, you know, an economic agenda, an economic discussion that never actually mentioned working class, unions, labor. Uh, we've had some very high profile union contract campaigns and union organization campaigns here <clears throat> in the state in the last couple of years. We've had, uh, you know, a historic strike that is coming to a close. We've had we've had a lot of labor unrest in the state of Alabama, and you know that was totally absent from from this discussion. If you look at what they're pushing, the the primary uh, policies beyond Medicaid expansion would be the grocery tax and the overtime tax. House Democrats are again pushing to cut the grocery tax, as well as the tax on overtime pay. Uh, and you also heard some mention of infrastructure as well. You know, I've discussed on the show before, but Alabama's tax system is highly inadequate and highly regressive. We are 49th in tax collection, but 50th if you factor in lottery and gambling, uh, which is actually noticeably absent from the House Democrats' agenda this year. 
you know, and the burden of taxes and fees that we do have fall disproportionately on the working class of Alabama rather than the wealthy and the big businesses that can most able that are most able to afford it. A removal on the taxes of groceries and overtime that would be a welcome relief for working class Alabamians and it would begin to address the regressive nature of our tax structure. To me, it appears like the Alabama House Democrats are telling Republicans, hey, since you guys seem to love tax cuts so much, we dare you to cut taxes for low and middle income people. You know, and maybe they will. Maybe they will accept the challenge. One idea that's being put forth in these conversations is that cutting the grocery tax and the overtime tax wouldn't actually hurt the state's revenues. The theory is that people will spend that saved money elsewhere and the economic activity stimulated by the cuts will bring in enough revenue to offset the lost taxes. In fact, House Minority Anthony Daniels was praised by right-wing radio host Michael Yaffe for his supposed advocacy of supply-side economics. Uh, credit to Jacob for finding that little nugget. And in fairness, this is not a direct parallel to the typical, you know, Reaganist Republican supply side tax theory. Rather than cutting taxes for those at the top and pretending that the wealth will trickle down, these tax cuts would be felt the most among the bottom and the middle, growing the economy up and out from there. Ultimately, I can't say for certain whether it will pan out this way, where, you know, new revenues will offset lost tax collections. I can't say that's how it's going to work, and frankly, I'm not sure if the legislators could really say that either. You know, but at the end of the day, generally speaking, more money in the pockets of working people is a good thing. It's a good thing for working people, and it's a good thing for the economy. But, <laughs> but, I mean, quite obviously, this does nothing to address the inadequacy of the tax structure in the state. If their, their entire agenda was enacted, it wouldn't change the fact that we're 49th or 50th in tax collection. Which, what does that mean? Well, that means we have the worst services provided by the state of any state in the country. Infrastructure, education, you name it, healthcare, uh, you name the aspect of public service, and our agencies are understaffed, underfunded, sabotaged, uh, and unable to really meet the needs of the people. Just last year, there were 18 new laws that were passed that lowered the state's revenues by $160 million a year going forward. Right? There's more tax cuts we know are going to be on the way. There's rebates that are being floated out as ideas. Um, the economy has been okay in terms of tax collections, right? That's why there's a surplus in the general fund and the education trust fund. But let's not pretend like that's going to last forever. The budgets have, have benefited generously from uh, federal infusions of cash through COVID relief, through the American Rescue Plan Act. Um, we've seen you know, spending has, has continued to accelerate because we have inflation. And uh, as prices have risen on consumer goods, that has meant consumers are paying higher taxes, right? Uh, as they check out at the, at the grocery store, at Walmart, wherever. So tax collections are looking fairly good uh, 
and that's why we have these surpluses. But those surpluses are not going to last forever. Um, you're talking about decades of underinvestment in the state, right? So even with you know some pretty eye-popping numbers right now, um, even those those nice surpluses aren't enough to undo years of underinvestment. So I would just caution those in the legislature to be mindful of how the budget can change and how the economy can change. Because as we're having this discussion, the Federal Reserve is doing everything it can to spike unemployment, right? That's not a secret. That's not a conspiracy. That's what their own documentation says. Their goal is to spike unemployment. And historically, doing what they're doing results in a recession every time. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that later in the show. Uh, but I thought that was important context. Hmm. That's important context to these budget discussions. So all in all, are there some decent policies being proposed? Yes. Um, I think most working people would gladly take a tax cut on groceries and overtime. But there's a lot, a lot more that needs to be done in the state of Alabama. And if your quote-unquote bold agenda is so amenable to the other side that they're not going to find any problems with it, if your bold agenda is so bold that it could have come out of a you know communications department of the Chamber of Commerce, yeah, I don't know. I, I just feel like that's a missed opportunity to paint a different picture, to put forward a different vision of what Alabama could look like. Uh, if we were serious about growing Alabama from the bottom up. Absolutely. And the critics of, of our approach would say that, sure, but doing that isn't going to make anybody's life better right now. And that is, you know, and I understand that. And I'm not even saying that, that that's wrong. You know, obviously putting forward a big, uh, you know, a big, bold, a really actually big, bold agenda, agenda that will empower working people, that'll uh, give folks health care, that'll make sure folks have housing, you know, all these important things. That's not going to pass in this legislative session, but it does, uh, it does open conversations and it increases people's imagination of what could happen. And, uh, but they're not exclusionary. They're not exclusionary at all. You can do these, you can propose these big, bold things while at the same time working on actually achievable things that are not big and that are not bold, but will make, you know, thousands of people's lives better. And right. that's not, that's not anything to, to, you know, turn your nose up at, certainly, and I don't want to do that, but it, I think it's important to do both things at the same time. And we're not seeing that from the Alabama House Democrats. Yeah. Um, and that that's that would be how I close this conversation is this is fine as a as an agenda of what you think might be able to move forward in the legislature as it currently exists. But that is not the same as a vision of a different Alabama. And right. I think you need both. We're going to take a break really quick and bring, uh, and then on the other side, we're going to be talking to Lauren Gurley, Washington Post labor reporter, about uh, what happens when our child labor laws are broken and 
uh, who they target. Be right back. IBW558 is like a great football team. You've got to have the aptitude, skills, and knowledge to outperform the competition. If you're a non-union electrician, now is the perfect time to get off the sideline and join our team. We have the absolute best wages and benefit package in North Alabama and Southern Tennessee. It's because our team stands together, bargains together, and our families benefit from it. With immediate openings, you have the opportunity to see why the IBW is the right choice. Support for the Valley Labor Report comes from the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers Union. Learn more by visiting www.ifpte.org. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have stood with the working people of Alabama for over 40 years, providing skilled legal representation for your workplace injury claims. When you are injured on the job, it can be a scary time. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have the experience to guide you through the process to make sure that you and your family are properly taken care of and your rights are protected. If you need help, call the attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs at 855-617-9333 or visit online at www.mtnj.com. No representation is made that the quality of legal services provided is greater than the quality of legal services provided by other law firms. Support for this program comes from the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 136, out of Central Alabama. Learn more at IBEW136.org. Attention union members, membership organizations, podcasters, or anyone with a payment processing need. The future is here, and your organization needs to be prepared by working with Unionly. With Unionly, your union or organization can take payments on a mobile device, eliminating processing fees, giving you a better price than other payment processing methods, while at the same time supporting a union-friendly business with a specialized skill set to meet your needs. Your members will thank you when they pay their dues at their convenience without waiting in line to deposit cash or check. Start preparing for the future today by calling 206-595-8631 or visiting unionly.io. Are you looking for a better future, a career that can have you set for life, and to be a part of something that's bigger than yourself? If you are, then consider a skilled trades apprenticeship with the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades. The work of IUPAT is all around us, from the industrial painters who work on the bridges to drywall finishers, floor coverers, the glazers who install the glass in our skylines, and so much more. With an IUPAT apprenticeship, you earn while you learn and receive benefits while learning the trade, including a pension. We provide world-class education free of charge. That's right, no student debt. Our starting salaries for apprentices that graduate is above the national median salary with benefits for entire families. And you have the flexibility to take your trade wherever you'd like in the country to work. IUPAT District Council 77 covers our entire region, so give Adam Booth a call at 205-603-3142 for more information. Again, that phone number is 205-603-3142. Come build a better future with us today and join IUPAC. Come on, you poor workers, good news to you, I'll tell how the good old union has come in here to dwell. Labor creates all wealth, all wealth should go to labor, and you are listening to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison, my co-host and fellow agitator is Adam Keller. 
And we are going right into, oh, and we've got a phone number. The phone number is 844-899-TVLR. The line is not open right now. Our show is just too packed this morning. Got too much to get to, but you can text us. Send us a text if you've got something to add, and we might respond on the air. 844-899-TVLR. Going right into our next segment, Lauren Kaori Gurley is a labor reporter for the Washington Post, a member of the union there, the Washington Post Guild, and our guest this morning. Lauren, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Happy to have you. So uh, your story is about what, uh, you know, when people think about child labor, I guess, or the way that I think about it, and who should be punished is that I think that, that the bosses are the most responsible. I think that, and I think that most people, when they think about that, that's who they think as well should be the recipient of the harshest penalties that our society doles out when 12 year olds and 13 year olds work in work at all, you know, frankly, earn a profit for somebody at all, but particularly when uh, they're they're working in dangerous facilities, we think that the the management of the enterprise should be held responsible primarily. Uh, but your story <laughs> in the Washington Post talks about how that's not necessarily the case. But uh, before we get into the, get into that, can you talk to us generally about what happened at Packers Sanitation? Yeah. Um, so I would like to start off by saying there's been like a very, I don't know if you've talked about this on your show at all, but there's been like a steep rise in child labor violations since 2015, which is when they hit a record low, but they've basically quadrupled since 2015. Mm -hmm. Um, and there have been a number of pretty astonishing, um, cases that have come out this year that, you know, people who've worked in the child labor space say they've like never heard of stuff like this happening in the United States, even, you know, over the past few decades, but there was child labor found in the Hyundai supply chain in, I believe, Alabama and other states in the yep. South, um, which you may have talked about on your show. Yes. Um, <laughs> and there was this year, um, a Department of Labor raid and investigation into Packer Sanitation Services, which is the largest, um, one of the largest food safety sanitation companies in the United States, that found 102 um, minors, children, um, working in meatpacking slaughterhouses, facilities around the United States in eight states, I believe. And that finding came out this year in um in January um and the kids were like as young as 13 and 14 um a lot of them we learned in our investigation were unaccompanied minors from um Guatemala um who had recently arrived in the United States and the way this all sort of was I guess discovered was because some teachers um, at local middle schools and high schools reported, um, you know, seeing burns on students and hearing mm -hmm. that they were like burns and like, um, what is the word, uh, open wounds on children's bodies um, and sort of had to report that to the authorities. And then it became clear that, you know, this had actually been going on um, in um, at least the town that I went to, Grand Island, Nebraska, um, for the past 20 years. Um, 
So we went to Grand Island and um, ended up talking to uh, uh, some of the the guardians of the kids involved in this. Yeah, and the um, they found the the labor department officials found they were able to confirm a hundred and two you know, children working at this facility, but they said it's up to as many or even more than five times more than that, because they can only quote, they can only confirm so much. Exactly. Um, so, uh, um, the regional Chicago, um, administrator for the department of labor told us like, it was extremely clear just hanging out outside the facility, going into the facility that a lot of people looked extremely young. Um, hmm. And, uh, you know, their investigation is sort of to prove that this is happening at a company, but it is not under the Department of Labor's, um, it's not part of their their job, I guess, to like make sure that every single person in the facility who's a minor isn't there anymore. It's sort of up to the company to follow the law. So they they said there there could have easily been many, many more kids mm -hmm. than 102 working in these in these plants. Um and let, and I guess I should mention that um they were working the midnight shift. So these were shifts that ran from about 11 p.m. to about 6 a.m. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um can you imagine, you know, 13 and 14 year olds working from 11 to 6 a.m. and then going to school? That's what's, mm. that was what was happening. Um, They're falling asleep in class. Um, and uh, yeah, I, it, I think that, that was all I wanted to say. Yeah, it, it's and, and you know, I, I obviously, you know, I, I think that children as young as 12 or 13 shouldn't be working really anywhere make you know making a profit for somebody anywhere i think that you know they need to be in school they need to be you know playing uh, you know basketball <laughs> outside of school right these are the things that 12 13 year olds need to be doing but i where where there is such danger you know it's important to also point that out just to add to the understanding of how egregious what happened here and you wrote in your article Quote, the Grand Island teens had been hired to scour blood and beef fat from the slippery, quote, kill floor using high pressure hoses, scalding water and industrial foams and acids. They sanitized electric knives, fat skinners and 190 pound saws used to split cow carcasses, according to court records. Some students suffered chemical burns and were so sleep deprived after working their shift that they dozed off in classes. And the girl that you spoke to is actually one of those that had um, that faced injuries as well. You said that that she uh, uh, that the the middle school found chemical burns, blisters, Ooh. and open wounds on her hands on her hands plural presumably I guess uh, and one <laughs> knee. Uh, the girl said that the wounds had been caused by cleaning chemicals that soaked through her gloves and clothes. I mean, this is just insane stuff here. Truly. I mean, going through those court records, man, um, there's just so much in there that is so gruesome. Um, you know, I, I talked to people who I talked to, we spoke to a, a man who is now in his thirties who worked there um, back in 2001. Um, and he was just talking about uh, when he was, a, he worked there when he was a minor back in 2001. So this has been going on for mm -hmm. a long time, just the amount of cow parts and 
um, blood and guts that, you know, little, these kids are, are working in is just insane. Um, um, and, uh, it was interesting speaking to, um, this young girl who worked there. She's now 14, but she was 13 when she worked there. Um, she, uh, sort of the family, the judge and, who is sort of prosecuting the, uh, the, the, the attorney that's prosecuting the parents and the girl sort of gave very differing accounts. The girl was like, Oh, it wasn't that bad, but she's only like 13 or 14. It was hard to right. get a real uh, description from her. And then the court records just, I mean, make, make things sound like insane. Um, so, um, there was a lot of, it was interesting to get all these different perspectives. There's a lot going on in terms of the family and, um, the girl and um, sort of their story versus what um, what the prosecutor and the judge were saying. Right, right. Yeah, and and I, I want to go into some some of this, some of the dynamics there that exist between these people and and um, you know the the law enforcement. I guess you know we don't really think of labor officials as as law enforcement, but in a way, you know, they're enforcing laws. But but I, I wanted to point out because this is an interesting piece in your article that the the company this isn't their first run with a country's labor officials about child labor. The meatpacking plant is owned by a Brazil a Brazilian company. And in 2016, the Brazilian government fined this same company for illegally employing children. And in 2021, a Brazilian anti-slavery group accused the company of buying cattle from ranches that use slave labor. So, you know, despite the fact that in these court documents, the, uh, you know, the, the company folks try to say that these are like rogue individuals that are, um, you know, that are doing this, you know, and your account from this person who worked as a minor in 2001, they're uh, their behavior in other countries. I mean, this seems like this is a, you know, a pattern of behavior, we could say. Right. Um, I mean, and this, so JBS is the plant that um, the girl worked at, who I spoke to. Um, and JBS, like you said, Brazilian-based company, but uh, one of the largest, if not the largest meat processing company in the world. Um, they basically, uh, you know, faced no penalties for this because it was actually a contractor, a sanitation contractor, Packer Sanitation Services mm. that was employing and hiring these kids. So they they walked away entirely, I mean, except for maybe their reputation unscathed from this. They paid no fines. They faced no criminal charges. Um, and and you know, even the Department of Labor did not did not blame them for this. They're like, this is this is your contractor's fault, which is, you know, um, sort of the rise of the contracting labor model has has made it such that um, you know big brand name companies can sort of um, often you know aren't the ones liable or right. responsible under the law when things like this happen. Right, and so you know, circling back to this relationship, the dynamic between the family and and people who are really when we think about when we think about child labor laws, we think about protecting children. That's the purpose of these laws, ostensibly, presumably, right? And, and yet, <laughs> these people are so afraid of coming forward. I mean, help is available to these folks in certain, you know, you mentioned in your article that as potential victims of human trafficking, 
The underage workers might be entitled to federal assistance, buying groceries, paying rent, stuff like this. Uh, and yet the mother of this, of this girl who can't read or write in any language, much less English, said she was afraid right. that the government would take her children away if the family accepted the money, which seems like, you know, not an unreasonable fear given that she, her husband is in jail now and she's headed to jail. Right. Yeah, no, it's a totally legit legitimate fear. Um, you know, the Department of Homeland Security, um, you know, sent out a letter offering these kids, um, you know, work a pathway to, you know, um, work permits and to sort of be uh, uh, assurance that they wouldn't be deported and not a single family as of last week mm. had accepted. They'd received this letter months ago and, you know, not a single um, family of, of these kids had accepted it. And part of the problem was they're offering um, these protections to the kids, but they're not offering them to the entire family. Mm. Right. And so, mm these families are mostly undocumented. Um, and so people are terrified and for good reason, right? right. Like you said, like it is, it is possible that this woman, the mother of this girl that we spoke to could, um, you know, lose her kids or be deported or, um, you know, be punished in some way for, for, I mean, it's already happening. So, so there's, right. there's a lot of distrust. Um, and I think especially a lot of these, um, a lot of the people are from Guatemala. There's already like a deep distrust of, you know, institutions and government for a good reason as well. Um, and so um, it's just this wild situation where the Department of Labor went in and sort of, you know, they're they're the heroes of the story in some way, but on the other side of it, um, you know, we don't know if these kids are safe. In fact, we know that some of them left town, some of them dropped out of school. Um, there is no, no one knows if they're, if they're safe or maybe they're just working, you know, in another meat packing plant with under another name, you know, from the next state over. So there's really the, the, the Department of Labor, their mission is sort of to enforce child labor laws, but that's just like making sure that kids aren't working in meat plants. Once that's, once that's, um, certain it's just like not in their mission to make sure that kids are safe or or they can try to help them and set them up with resources but um they really aren't you know there there aren't that no there's no one looking out for these 102 minors now and you said that the labor department made that explicit to you you said that that yeah that they said caring for minors is not part of the labor department's mission <laughs> right <laughs> which is <laughs> Pretty, I was I was pretty shocked by that. Um, I mean, that's just, um, just yeah. that's just so bizarre to me. Why would you? Know, I mean, the I can't imagine being the uh, if I were you know I have some amount of interest as uh, you know in in maybe one day working for the labor department. It would be to help working people. That would that would be you know my own personal mission. Maybe if it's not like enshrined you know above my desk or whatever. But that's just so backwards it seems to me that you know we're only going to enforce the letter of the law instead of the spirit of the thing and the spirit of the thing to me is protecting children right this the spirit of the law and what it says is that it's protecting children's you know opportunities for education their well-being and their health and safety um and you know there's really as far as as we could tell there's really no um there was really i mean Besides the fact that the raid itself happened, there's really no assurance that those three things are 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 sort of, um, you know, those uh, education, well-being, health and safety of those kids are are guaranteed at all. Um, 
And mm-hmm. so um, uh, it was it was it was very interesting for me to hear that from the, from from the labor department. Um, they they did. I mean, I don't know if some of your listeners have also seen the New York Times expose that came out that um, mm-hmm. uh, by Hannah Dreyer uh, last week or the week before. Um, but after that came out, the Department of Labor sort of um, immediately held a press conference and we're like, okay, we're teaming up with HHS, Health and Human Services, to sort of um, fill some of these gaps or to make sure that we're actually like following up with unaccompanied minors and making sure that, you know, if they call us, that we're giving them calls back. If they call us with concerns that we're giving them calls back, that sounds like a very basic thing, but I guess they weren't doing that before. Um, There's this Biden administration has sort of announced a broader crackdown on child labor over the past week or so. And when we reached out to the labor department about for comment about, you know, what are you doing to ensure these kids are safe? They're like, well, we're, we're taking additional steps now, um, or we're trying to sort of do cross inter interagency or yeah, collaboration between agencies, which of course is, um, you know, often very difficult to get. Right. Yeah. I was going to, I was going to say, I mean, it sounds to me like, I don't know. It's, it sounds to me like some of that collaboration should have already been in place and it shouldn't have taken, you know, getting to this level before the agencies are helping each other out. Because in fairness to the DOL, I understand what they're saying about, you know, the specific aspects of their mission and their work. And they're not necessarily equipped to uh, make sure those kids have a health and I mean, a healthy, safe educational life. But come on now, there's other government agencies that you work with and that you should be working with HHS and Department of Education and all that. So, uh, yeah, I would hope that there's going to be a lot more collaboration to ensure that not just are are we enforcing these child labor laws, but making sure these families and these children are taken care of. And, you know, that's to me the saddest part of the whole story is that there are families who have to resort to this in the first place, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and it shouldn't be that way in the wealthiest country in the history of the planet. It it just shouldn't be that way that we feel compelled to send our children to work. but yeah, I, I I'm glad to hear there is now more collaboration <laughs> on the way. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, it's really interesting um, talking to people in the community, and this has been happening in this in this sort of industrial town. It's the third largest city in Nebraska um, for decades. We've found, but um, that they've been hiring kids to clean the slaughterhouse. Mm-hmm. Um, most people like most family, I mean, the kids genuinely really want to work. In fact, if you talk to people coming from unaccompanied minors coming from Guatemala, they will tell you that they're coming to the United States specifically to work. The only reason why they're, because they need to, the kids, I mean, crossing the border, I guess right now, like coyotes fees range from like 6,000 to like $10,000. The kids, in order to come to the United States, they take out their families take out loans against their their property in Guatemala, um, like to pay for these trips. And if they don't pay these loans back, like the families can lose their property. And so kids really come here wanting to work. I mean, you could they're they're like, wow, I can make eighteen dollars an hour compared to like fifty dollars a week in Guatemala, like. Um, and so it's just very interesting talking to people in the local community. Like they think it's a lot of people felt like, you know, what the Department of Labor did was like devastating 
for these kids because they lost that source of income. Um, so <laughs> it's very complex when you think about it sort of in a transnational sense as well. Right. Yeah. And, and, and you know, how do you certainly, you know, you can't it you can't fault the kids, obviously. And it's difficult, it, you know, it's difficult to even uh, fault the parents and, in, in you know, the you said that you know the um the father or the stepfather is is you know he's now in prison for child abuse charges because he drove you know the girl to work but you know i mean the they were pushed there by you know the desperation that they felt you know in their home country but then even even here you know it wasn't like he was able to work uh enough to make it such that his daughter didn't need to right Right. In uh, fact, this man himself, the judge said in his um, sentencing that this man has been working since he was in first grade, the stepfather. So wow. yeah, in Guatemala, um, yet they still they still um, put him through him into jail. But um, um, the, the judge said he definitely like weighed that as like a factor in, in the sentencing. It's like this man has been working since he was, you know, five or six. Um, and so there's like cultural differences here. Or I mean, it's not even cultural. It's just like basic economic needs. Yeah, yeah, cultural and material. But yeah, I mean, and, you know, to a certain extent, like if he was working at five or six and then his daughter starts working at 12, well, you know, I mean, there, it's like progress, I guess, in a certain, you know, in a certain sense. Right. Um, mm -hmm. But it's. Yeah, it's just such a such a sad story. And and so, you know, I mean, I don't know if if they're, you know, what do you think that w would be or what are some of the solutions that some, you know, advocacy groups are, are putting out about this issue? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the local advocacy, like immigration groups and advocacy groups in Nebraska can't even get the names of the kids from the Department of Labor. Like Department of Labor contacted groups, um, a number of them and said, hey, like there are these kids out there, can you provide them resources? And these groups said, well, can you give us the kids' names? And they said, well, sorry, um, that is, uh, you know, confidential information. We can't share the names of minors. So basically the kids, you know, no one can really help them. So I think mm. um, a lot of the groups, some of whom are, a lot of nonprofits, some of whom are like literally government contractors are saying that, you know, they should be, they should have contact information for these kids so that they can help them. Um, I think, you know, the, <laughs> the solution I've heard is just like, you know, more interagency collaboration, more follow up with kids, like giving actually making sure that instead of just offering the aid to the kid themselves, you offer it to their entire family, you say, you know, uh, your this entire family is now protected from being deported or has um, work authorization. And that way, kids are more likely to accept, families are more likely to accept the aid. Um, because in the other instance, sense. you're asking, in the other instance, you're basically asking this 12-year-old child in, in, a, in a country that they don't know, that they, they are not from, to abandon their family. Right, exactly. Um, and so no one's accepting it. Um, and, and it's just bizarre. I mean, talking to this mother who received these papers with this offer for her, for her child, like she can't even read the papers. So it's just like, what, of course, no one's going to accept this. Like, I don't know how many other families are in this exact same situation, but just like the, the, the lack of foresight into sort of how this is playing out just seems, um, it, it was astonishing to us. 
Lauren, thanks for taking the time with us this morning. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah, thank, thank you so you. much. Great to be on. Have a great weekend. Appreciate yep, it. You too. Lauren K. Gurley is a labor reporter for the Washington Post. She is a member of the Washington Post Guild, the union there. You can follow her on Twitter at Lauren K. Gurley. Uh, Lauren K. Gurley on Twitter, and obviously you can find her work in the Washington Post. She was previously working for Vice Motherboard. Uh, you can find a lot of her stuff there as well. So. Yeah, I really appreciate her work. Um, I have a very love-hate relationship with the Washington Post primarily the hate side of it. Uh, <laughs> but I really do enjoy Lauren's work, and, and yeah. she's doing some good work there. Uh, and, you know, I I can't help but think of the Hyundai situation here because of the contractor situation, mm -hmm. right? It's yeah. it, it, it seems like whenever we uncover these stories, the company itself, who ultimately is reaping the benefits from their, you know, exploitation, it's insulated by hiring these temp agencies and staff agencies to do the hiring for them. Yeah. It's just, uh, you know, layers of bureaucracy that are inserted to insulate people from real accountability. And it's just, uh, you know, it's heartbreaking to hear that, you know, the parents of these kids are being punished and being thrown in cages when the folks who profited off this yeah. walk away scot-free. And, and meanwhile, you've got governors in other states pushing to loosen child labor laws yeah. like in arkansas governor uh sanders Huck huckabee sanders she is a she's a champion right now of loosening child labor laws and we're seeing it all over the country and it's just uh i think i saw a picture of her signing that law surrounded by children it's just uh it's dystopian and as people in our chat have been talking about here during the interview it is very much a return to the gilded age and yeah. uh in one area after another in our country our economy our society we seem intent on going back to the gilded age and there are politicians who are are more than eager to bring us there yeah but you and you mentioned that that contracting stuff she mentioned in her article that um that I, well, she said in the interview that the the meatpacking plant itself, the company JBS, did not face any penalties at all. The uh, contractor Packer Sanitation faced no criminal charges, no criminal charges. The parents of these children are going to jail for child abuse. For child abuse. And there's no criminal charges on the sanitation company. They did have to pay a $1.5 million civil fine. But this is in the context of hundreds of millions. I can't, I, I'm trying to. And, and like, who gets the, the money? Obviously, right. the family, the, 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 the child gonna, right. is not going to benefit from the fine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's so, uh, you know, I'm trying to figure out how much they made in, in a year. And I'm having trouble. I, I'm, I'm guessing out. that one point five million dollar fine was uh, the cost of doing business, and not yeah. at all. Either a way, I'm getting two wildly different numbers. To be fair, one number from Zapia says Packer Sanitation Services peak revenue uh, was four hundred sixty million in 2021, and but then Rocket Reach says their revenue was two point seven billion. So I don't know which one is right, but either way. Even they at could, the lower end, four hundred million dollars, one point five, that is less that is a fraction of one percent of the operating revenue of this company for one year. 
and this is for fines for years. It's less than 1% of their revenue for a single year that this company is at the maximum having to pay, right? And no criminal penalties, like I said. Whereas the families of these children are facing, are, have been convicted of child abuse. I mean, it's just, just a, just a clown world, a disgusting, disgusting society. Yeah, I just don't, I just, it's hard to wrap my head around it. And, and it's just really, really disturbing to see the revival of child labor as a, as, as an, like an accepted practice yeah. now, uh, as something that we're just supposed to get used to. And, uh, I mean, the, the company could employ adults. Right. The company could pay adults fair, fair wages and provide decent working conditions. They could do that. Yeah. That is an option on the table. Just so everyone's clear, I, I know uh, there's been a lot of whining and moaning in the last few years from the business class that, you know, nobody wants to work anymore, they say. Uh, but there are tried and true methods to recruit employees mm -hmm. and retain employees. It is not rocket science. Right. So, uh, you know, it's just it is disturbing. Uh, I hate to see the, the the disparity in the justice here. It's there is no justice here, and it's it's sad to see that. Um, and I think we need to see a lot more from the Biden administration on this. I, you know, apparently, as Lauren mentioned, you know they're going to do a renewed push uh, in light of some of this news. But it shouldn't take this news yeah. to do that, uh, and it shouldn't take this news to get agencies to collaborate. Um, it, you know, uh, so much more needs to be done and we need to see some people being made examples of not parents, not kids, employers. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, see, if we are going to be a society that puts humans in cages, then the bosses need to go to jail. That's who needs to go to jail in these scenarios. The bosses, they need to go to jail. The children need to get full and complete amnesty. Their families need to get permanent status money to pay rent for a year or something. I mean, seriously, there needs to be... And it, all the money for that needs to come from the revenue of these companies. That's the way to do it. That's the way to do it. But that's not, that's not going to happen. And, and we some, live in a clown world. Something that uh, somebody in our comment section brought up that I think is really, really worth me saying is that if the U.S. didn't destabilize so much of Latin America in yeah. the first place, right, we wouldn't right. have so much of this going on, right? Because there's there are push and pull factors regarding immigration. Yeah. And nobody, particularly on right-wing radio and, you know, right-wing media, they love to make a lot of hay about immigration and they like to stir up nativist sentiments, but never once will they ever discuss American involvement in the region yeah. and how that could facilitate this immigration drive. They never want to talk about that. They never want to talk about the governments that have been overthrown. They never want to talk about the free trade agreements that have been in place. They never want to talk about the multinational corporations exploiting in those areas or the way U.S. drug wars have fueled violence and, and criminal gangs. They don't want to talk about that because it, it's, you know, it, it draws too many questions about the way we do things. We're going to take a break really quick. We've got some more on the other side. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report. There's a lot of talk about a shortage of workers, but that's not the case with IBW 558. 
We have provided our customers over 3,000 workers and performed over 3 million man hours in a pandemic year. With 8,000 OJT hours, 900 classroom hours, OSHA 30, and a state license, our members receive the equivalent of a master's degree. That's what makes IBW558 the right choice for your electrical needs. Look us up at Facebook or at IBW558.org. Support for this program is provided by the International Association for Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama. Learn more at IAMAW44.org. Support for this program also comes from the Iron Workers, Local 477. So if you are looking for contractors with lower than average EMR and TRIR, uh, they tell me that if you need to know what those mean, then you will. Uh, or if you need to supplement a workforce at any level for any amount of time, short or long term, if you need iron workers that come trained and certified at no extra cost, or if you need workers from superintendent down to general laborer, and you're looking to start work on a project or you're unhappy with your current contractor situation, you need to call my friend Jeb Miles with the Ironworkers Local 477. They only work with the best in the business, vetted contractors, and can do all kinds of jobs from roofing to steel and bridge erection, from welding to heavy rigging, from structural repairs to machinery alignment, and much more. They supply manpower on four of the five largest projects in North Alabama, so you know they're legit. If you need good quality, safe, efficient, diligent, and knowledgeable workers on your job, then you need the Iron Workers Local 477. Call Jeb Miles at 256-383-3334 or via email at local477 at bellsouth.net and make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report. We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AFGE.com. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. The Laborers International Union of North America, Local 366, is proudly recruiting North Alabama workers to work construction and nuclear plant maintenance. If you're interested, please contact Donna at their training center to start the process. That phone number is 256 415 Again, that phone number is 256-415-7452. No experience is needed. Free training is offered, but you must be able to pass a background check and a drug test. Local hiring that grows our community with good-paying jobs that have benefits is their mission. Live better. Work union. Local 366. Feel the power. Support for this program also comes from the Mid-South Council of Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. Learn more at rwdsu.info. Come 
Alabama's only union talk radio show. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller. We have a phone number. The line is not open, but you can send us a text if you want to have your comment, have your voice heard. We love free speech here on the program. Uh, So shoot us a text message and we'll respond live on the air. The phone number is 844-899-TVLR. That's 844-899-8857. We appreciate everybody hanging out with us in the chat. Uh, Joe uh, in the Facebook chat, brother in the the, uh, Steelworkers Union, said the show's great. Messages are depressing but need to be told. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate it. Uh, Mel Sutton asks, Have you heard about the paper mill closing in Canton, North Carolina? Indeed, we're talking to Callie Pruitt about that in overtime today, Mel. Yeah, so definitely stick Uh, around for that. Yeah, definitely got to stick around for that. We're going to be talking about the paper mill closure in Canton, North Carolina. And I uh, spent the week in Maine reporting on the... um, Reporting on the closure of the J Mill, uh, J Maine, uh, the the one that had the strike in '87. Um, so I spent the whole week in Maine, and uh, I'm gonna have one article coming out probably on Monday or Tuesday. Another article that's gonna be longer, like a feature piece, 4,000 words or something, in a month or so. And I'm also gonna have a podcast with some of the some of the old retirees. Um, so definitely, uh, you know. Can you tell us uh, what outlets you were working with? Is that uh, top oh, yeah, secret? No, it's in these in these times, in these times, magazine and uh, the Real News Network. Um, hell yeah! Yeah, hell yeah! Looking so, forward um, to seeing that. I know it's going to be good for yeah. sure. For sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So, uh, talk to us, Adam, about what the Tennessee Valley Progressive Alliance is doing this week. Sure thing. So, uh, the Tennessee Valley Progressive Alliance is hosting Dana Sweeney from the Alabama Appleseed Center for Law and Justice to discuss the state legislative issues and Appleseed's latest research and activism. The event will be this week, March 14th, 6 p.m. Uh, let's see, March 14th, I believe that is Tuesday evening. If you're listening, 6 p.m. at the downtown Huntsville Library Auditorium. So, in the main Huntsville Library downtown. Uh, check out the auditorium, 6 o'clock to 7.30 p.m. is the schedule. And there is a Facebook event where you can RSVP, but even if you're not on Facebook, that's fine. You're hearing the details now, and now you can put it on your calendar. Uh, had some messages with uh, both Dana and uh, David Odom, who is the lead organizer with the TVPA. And according to David, Dana's going to review the criminal and economic justice landscape in Alabama highlight some of the key bills being debated at the state house and share ways for folks in North Alabama to get engaged and advocate for a better Alabama. Dana's presentations are always packed with great information. You will come away from this talk enlightened about state policy and motivated for action. David said, quote, our group has been working with Dana for over six years now. He does an incredible job at showing the links between specific law enforcement policies in Alabama and broader economic justice. You will probably learn more from this hour-long presentation than you will from reading months of news about state politics. If his past talks are any guide, he will also show that a surprising amount of progress is possible, even in the short term, if people are ready to get active and get involved. I thought it was really important to highlight this event today uh, because the legislative session began this week on the 7th, 
So it's really, uh, it's crunch time for activists and organizers and working people to pay attention to what's happening in Montgomery, to get involved, to be talking to the legislators and building coalitions. The Tennessee Valley Progressive Alliance is a nonpartisan coalition of activists and organizers up here in the Valley seeking to build power for the 99% and starting at the local level. Uh, if you're not familiar with TVPA, uh, like I said, been around for several years. When President Trump came to town, TVPA protested him. Uh, when there was a fight to remove Confederate monuments in front of the courthouse, it was TVPA who took the lead. Uh, TVPA really grew out of the Raise the Wage Huntsville campaign several years ago. Uh, some really, just some fantastic people and uh, really a, a, a coalition that needs to be in place and a coalition that needs to be strengthened. So I wanted to highlight this event uh, and also wanted to highlight Alabama Appleseed and the good work that Dana is doing there. I spoke to Dana, got a little background on him. He is the statewide community organizer for Alabama Appleseed, currently lives in Montgomery, but was uh, in Tuscaloosa before that. He spent his whole life in Alabama and cares deeply about this, making this place better. And that's something else he emphasized about Alabama Appleseed is that, you know, this is home for them, just as, as home for us. And that's why they do their work. They love Alabama and they want to make it better. They want to make it as, as be the best it can possibly be. So uh, in terms of what you can expect, I mentioned a little bit about that, but uh, in more detail, Alabama is one of the poorest states in the country with some of the harshest criminal punishment laws anywhere in the United States. There are a lot of problems that emerge when those two realities collide. So that will be the emphasis there. Uh, I asked Dana, why why come to Huntsville and why work with the TVPA to do this? Uh, you're very busy. It's a legislative session. Why take time of your, out of your schedule? And he said, what happens in Huntsville and the Tennessee Valley affects everyone who lives in Alabama as one of the major population centers in the state and as the fastest growing part of the state. A huge portion of our state lawmakers come from our neck of the woods and uh, TVPA really is is a way to connect into the most activated, uh, engaged, progressive folks in the community. So that's what they're trying to do. Uh, I really think it's important that folks show up if you are at all available. And if you're not sure that you can make it, ask around, see if someone from your organization, see if someone from your union can appear. Uh, because it's important that we all like educate each other and keep each other informed on what's happening in the legislature and what's going to affect everyday working class people. So uh, last thing on that I will say is check out Alabama Appleseed's website. They have an action alert network. So you can go online, you can sign up for that. And, you know, when they send out the bat signal, so to speak, and they need backup, they need reinforcements in calling and emailing and writing and marching, you'll get the action alert. So highly, highly recommend you do that. And uh, that's all I have to say about the TVPA event. Happy to uh, plug some other events or we can save that for a minute. Yeah, yeah, <clears throat> we'll save that and we'll go ahead and, and but we are we'll keep it in Alabama. Um to uh to ask the question adam is uh is is our senator 
uh, Tommy Tuberville supporting crime or workers? Huh. Well, what do you guys think? Uh, let us know in the comments. <laughs> what do you think? Uh, what do you think Tommy Tuberville is doing? So, last week I put out an article on uh, TVLR.fm. If you haven't signed up for our email list, please do that so you can uh, stay informed when we have new article articles out. You know that's something we're we're expanding this month. So yeah, I asked the question: Will Senator Tuberville support workers or crime? And I do have some updates. Football coach turned Republican politician Tommy Tuberville has an opportunity to stand up for working people and the law. Elected in 2020, Alabama's ranking senator serves on the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, the HELP Committee. It's in that capacity that Senator Tuberville was expected to be faced with a vote that could have shaken up not just the monumental Starbucks drive, but labor relations more broadly. On March 1st, Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont, the chairman of the HELP Committee, announced his intention to hold a vote to subpoena Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz. Listeners will know that Schultz had uh, been previously requested to testify, which he, of course, resisted. However, with a subpoena vote on the way, Starbucks announced this week that Schultz will now agree to come before the committee. And that meeting has been scheduled for March 29th. 9 a.m. So uh, I want to be on C-SPAN that day. Starbucks has been repeatedly found to violate labor law in, in its vicious anti-union campaign, most recently by NLRB administrative law judge Michael Rosas, who in a more than 200-page ruling issued last week on uh, hundreds of unfair labor practices just in the Buffalo, New York stores alone. <clears throat> hundreds. As previously reported by Haley Zarnack for the Valley Labor Report, Alabama workers have been directly impo- impacted by this egregious union-busting campaign by Starbucks. Reading here from Haley, Out of Alabama's 85 Starbucks stores, two have held union elections. Although the workers ultimately won their elections, they faced retaliation both before and after the votes. At the Scottsboro Starbucks, two organizers were fired just before ballots went out while others at both the Scottsboro store and the unionized Birmingham location faced hour cuts and schedule changes. The Birmingham Starbucks workers faced multiple terminations as well. One of those terminated organizers, former shift supervisor Kyle McGuckin, was fired in October, immediately upon returning from paternity leave. McGuckin had been organizing publicly for months, including appearing on the Valley Labor Report, And he was denied his wine garden rights when they requested a union representative be present for the meeting in which they were terminated. Now, Senator Toberville, he's yet to call on Howard Schultz to appear before the help committee. He indicated no no desire to see him appear before the committee. And uh, when I reached out to his office, I was asking, how do you plan to vote on this subpoena? Uh, but, you know, obviously Schultz has agreed to testify, so there will be no subpoena vote. But regardless, Tuberville has been totally silent on Schultz, Schultz's refusal to testify, and really the rampant wave of labor law violations that Schultz has overseen. But given tra- uh, the track record of Tommy Tuberville, it seems unlikely that he would have voted to issue a subpoena. Again, I'm going to quote from uh, Haley Zarnack on TVLR.fm. 
This is not the first time that Tuberville has opposed congressional efforts to bring attention to employer abuse in his state. In February 2022, as chairman of the Senate Budget Committee, Bernie Sanders held a hearing on the abuse of workers and consumers by private equity, highlighting how the laws set by Congress unfairly advantaged Warrior Met through bankruptcy proceedings. At the hearing, Alabama coal miners testified about the impact these private equity abuses have had on their lives. As the, as the miners approached two years on strike, the longest in Alabama history, Tuberville had not only failed to take any action to resolve the situation, but actually criticized his colleagues for holding a hearing on the matter, quoting from press releases put out by the bosses at Warrior Met. The HELP Committee with this pending hearing has an opportunity to declare that law and order applies to wealthy corporate executives and flagrant violations of federal labor law. As of publishing, Senator Tobby Tuberville's office has not responded to requests for comments. It's been over a week now since we uploaded the article, and still I have not received a response. I'm sure you find that shocking. Now, some people may say, why are you being so hard on Coach Tuberville? Are we just haters? Are we anti-American? Well, the truth is that we are dedicated labor unionists who think things could and should be better for everyday folks. We're working-class people who care deeply about making life better for other working-class people. And if you share that value, well, you're our audience. And Senator Tuberville has shown no interest in anything I've just said. In fact, he's had the distinct appearance of someone totally in over his head. And when he's opened his mouth, it's been about as incoherent and as bigoted as the Facebook grants of that one relative you have that you try to avoid at family gatherings. When he's not reading from company press releases, of course. For a man who so loudly declares his Christian faith, the coach-turned-senator has seemed more concerned about protecting his investments than about the least of these. Now, I'm not here to show any disrespect, and certainly not to question the man's faith, what I will say is that for some of us, our faith drives us to demand an end to poverty. For some of us, our faith drives us to want to do right by the elderly, the young, the folks with disabilities, and all the folks living on the margins. For some of us, our faith drives us to demand justice for everyday people. And for some of us, our faith drives us towards solidarity people coming together across common interest and in shared struggle to make their lives and communities better. You can say I'm asking too much, but I believe the working people of Alabama deserve leaders who share that drive to build a better world together. And that's going to be it for us today on the radio. Thank you for listening Appreciate your time. You've been listening to the Valley Labor Report. We have a great overtime lined up, yes. so make sure that you stay tuned and uh, check that out. We are going to be reacting to some really spicy clips from the U.S. Senate's Help Committee hearing on uh, protecting the right to organize, um, which, curiously, our Senator Tommy Tuberville was not at, despite that being his committee. Um Maybe, I don't know what he was doing, maybe playing golf or something or, or uh, anything else. We're also going to be talking to Callie Pruitt from the APOD Latcha podcast about the Canton, North Carolina paper mill closure. That is her hometown. 
Uh, and so she's got some some insight there. Uh, Going to be talking about the XFL unionization campaign and more. So make sure that you find us on YouTube and Facebook where we're going to be continuing for another hour and a half if you're just listening to us on the radio. Uh, and until next week, for the radio audience, just a reminder that Cover Alabama has their lobby day on March 21. You can register online before the 17th of March. And if you can't attend, then you can go to coveralabama.org alert to fill out their form and contact your representative about expanding Medicaid. Speaking of lobby days, the Alabama AFL-CIO is conducting their lobby days on April 4th and 5th with the Roadkill Barbecue on the 5th in Montgomery. That's an annual gathering of union folks and political folks, so make sure that your local union is sending somebody. And if they're not, maybe you can be that somebody. Consider that. The Huntsville branch of the Industrial Workers of the World, IWW, will be having their March general membership meeting online on March the 13th. If you're a member, check your inbox to confirm you receive the notice. And if you're not a member, then maybe join. The North Alabama Labor Council has two events to put on your calendar. Friday, March 24th, is a Thirsty Friday event at Jonathan's Grill in Madison at 5 p.m. And the Labor Council's barbecue has been rescheduled to April 22nd and will take place on Earth Day. As they do each month, our friends at Labor Notes are hosting a series of online trainings. Go to labornotes.org to find out more there. Leave us a voicemail. Send us a text message, 844-899-TVLR. Give us money on our website, tvlr.fm. We're going into overtime now. Until then and until next week, all power to the workers. <laughs>